It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome back to the fourth installment of the Fearless and Proud podcast, where we learn about the women, soldiers, spies, and battlefield nurses of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Willis. This time, we're talking about spies, the Mataharis, the women who went undercover in the most unexpected places. To steal critical information to help battlefield commanders and soldiers of both the North and the South. Let's start with one of the most successful spies of her day, Confederate spy Rose Greenhough. The beauteous Rose was a fixture of Washington, D.C.'s social scene, mixing with the power elite and ferreting out important information. Here's Catherine Clinton, the Denman Professor of American History at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Let's move to somebody that I know you enjoy talking about, Rose Greenhough. Uh, she was a renowned Confederate spy, and I was amazed in looking at her background, how self-made she was, completely self-invented. She seems to have seduced half of Washington and uh, I and kept the letters and kept the letters, <laughs> Jerry. This is I'm a historian who very much appreciates a woman who keeps those letters tied up and later delivered to the U.S. government. So. We, we do have that she kept her billet dues from men across the aisle from her Confederate comrades. So she is credited, though, by Jefferson Davis, no less, with the South's victory at the first Battle of Bull Run. Tell us what she did. I mean, how did she maneuver in this, you know, very rarefied atmosphere of D.C.? How did she become such an important part of it? Well, before the war, the Southerners and Northerners mixed fabulously there were parties there were there were teas there were levies and all of these contributed to a wide social network and rose greenow was really part of that as a widow she was able to entertain gentlemen and lots of them and from both sides of the aisle you could find her parlor full of senators members of the house of representatives and when the war broke out, it was believed that her loyalty to the Confederacy was going to compromise um, the situation. So she was confined to her home. It became known as Fort Greenhow. But she was able to smuggle out information. And the smuggling out of this information is, led, is said to have led to a decisive victory because the Confederates were prepared at the first Battle of Bull Run because of information that had been smuggled out of Washington by Rose Greenow. Now, she then, I think, upped her game and became much more open. And there were several women confined to her house. She was quite deeply offended that a woman of the streets or a common prostitute would be brought to her house. The doors were left open. It was all very, very uh, dis alarming for her. But even more alarming, um, in January of 1862, she was taken to the old Capitol prison with her daughter, her very young daughter, 
Rose, and the two of them were kept there until through negotiations, she was released back to um, Richmond and Jefferson Davis and hailed as a heroine. It was said, for example, that even while she confined to the prison, she used the prison grapevine and she took information that she found, wrapping it around her daughter Rose's rubber balls and bounced this information out on a rubber ball to waiting um, conspirators. So she had such wow. a wide network that she was able to uh, really achieve a spy network within Washington, which is why Davis uh, heralded her and entrusted her with such an important mission to go and be his ambassador to the European capitals. And of course, she's collect. received by Napoleon and Queen Victoria, right? I mean, this is an amazing story. She she is. And she is, you know, she is viewed as someone who represents perhaps a new nation emerging in the Western Hemisphere on the North American continent. We have to look at the British had already lost uh, all of America. So maybe they were going to regain it through a connection with the Confederacy. But nevertheless, she was lobbying on behalf of the Confederates who were not recognized at the time by these Europeans. And that was a very important thing. It was said that she was smuggling gold, which had been sewn into her dress. And indeed, the gold sewn into her dress is said to have been her fatal falling because she drowned off the coast of North Carolina. And this was when um, patrolling union boats came and the boat that was smuggling her in put her into a small rowboat but the rowboat capsized, and indeed she and her companions washed ashore dead. Shocking and unbelievable. Uh, just an amazing story. I mean, you couldn't make up a story that good. I mean, it, it's what a life. But also, but also, I want to say, Jerry, that what a life. And shouldn't she have been given, um, besides a military burial, shouldn't she be given a more prominent place? But right. as a woman, her impermissibility was how did she get that information? It was suggested that she had compromised her fine ladyhood morals. And by doing that, she then became common. She then became denied her ladyhood. So we find again and again, these women who step out, outside the circle of confinement of ladyhood are then damned by these males who believe that they were not proper. Well, smuggling, stealing information, um, wheedling out secrets is something that uh, might cause some impropriety, but it's all done in the cause of the nation, the cause of the Confederacy. And it's something that I was concerned about when I first started to encounter these spies and all the scouting and all the work they were doing. And yet it didn't seem to be incorporated into our tales of the South. And per you know, purposely, I think, um, in some cases, it's their roles are obscured because they were women ahead of their time. And there aren't always really good, there's not always really good documentation, although you mentioned with Greenow, she had a lot of letters that she held on to. I want to sure. get to a couple other details about her story, because I find her so interesting. First of all, why was she so dedicated to the Confederate cause? I think that she was someone who uh, was I won't say that she was invested in um, ladyhood um, because clearly she was working outside the boundaries, but I would say that she was, um, you know, raised in a border state, but nevertheless given the idea that 
um, the South was uh, where the forefathers of the country were, where the first few presidents were, that the South was really determining the future of the United States. And with this spat that broke out between the North and the South, which she felt would be reconciled um, very quickly, it didn't turn out that way, but she was someone who also was writing her reminiscences as the war went on, saw herself in the spotlight and, and took on that prominent role. I think that she was as I said, a woman ahead of her time who, who ran a salon, a popular political salon in Washington. And she saw that she could be of the greatest service to her Confederate friends and colleagues and also um, serve a cause that she perhaps believed in, which was that of Southern white superiority. One free black woman in Norfolk, Virginia, managed to steal designs for the Confederate Navy's first steam-powered warship, taking the plans from the very engineering firm designing it and delivering it to Union War Offices. Here's Dr. Kay Whitehead, a professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Loyola. So one of the other women, black women, that I read about who worked as a spy was Mary Tovistrea. Um, Mary T is what I call her. She was a, a freeborn Black woman who worked for a Confederate engineer in Norfolk, Virginia. I want to just take a note here um, for just a minute to talk about how dangerous it was for free Black folks to be in Virginia and to work because of the laws that were on the books at that moment, at that time, against free Black people, and how, how dangerous it was that at any moment you could be snatched up, you could be pulled, you could be kidnapped, you could be taken further down south, and you could be enslaved or you know, going back into slavery. So Mary Tovistre, who stayed in Norfolk, Virginia, overheard plans um, for the Confederate soldiers. They were building the CSS Virginia. And she actually obtained a copy of the plan. She then, daringly is what people said, with, with so much courage, she crossed enemy lines. Um, and so I'm just imagining this free black woman working with the Confederate engineer understanding what the plans are for, overhearing the conversation, daring to steal a copy of the plans, and then going to cross enemy lines so she can take this information to the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells. And what the result of that is that the Union cranked up or ramped up its own construction of its ironclad warship, the USS Monitor. And, and after the war, um, even though you know, her contributions were not talked about. Some people said they were lost from the records. They're out there now. Like the work that she did, the wherewithal that she had, the understanding that she had of why this particular uh, construction was so important to the Confederacy. Therefore, the knowledge of it would be important enough for her to risk her life to get it to the Secretary of the Navy gives us an understanding of who she was and maybe even a way of how she saw the world and how she saw her place in the world. I'm curious, how did she get it to Wells? Did she hand deliver? Did she give it to somebody who handed it? I mean, like, you're just desperate to see this in your own mind, right? Yes. And so the the stories that have been told about Mary Tobistra is that she 
actually crossed enemy lines. She took the information to get it into the hands of the Secretary of the Navy. Now, whether that was her getting giving it to someone to then give it to him, whether she was able to have an audience with him, I'm trying to understand, even with my 21st century lens, first of all, how does she know where they were? How does she know the route to take? Or what does she need to get her there? And how was she able to get an audience with him as a woman at this time? So it's not clear how the plans actually move from her hands into his hands, but the story is that she did cross enemy lines to take this information to Secretary Wells. Was she, what was she doing for a living? Was she cleaning the office? Was she a secretary? I mean, what was her reality? What I have always read is that she actually worked in the office. And my assumption was working in the office during this time as a Black woman in Virginia, in the office of a Confederate engineer who worked for the Confederate States of America as a soldier. I am not sure that she was working as a secretary rather than just cleaning the office, but understanding what was before her and understanding what was happening in the conversations. It's interesting because what it speaks to with her overhearing these plans is the way in which you look and study the work of the formerly slave community about how conversations were happening around them, but that they were seen as invisible. And so they would talk freely about these ideas and these plans as if they weren't there because they were part of the background. And if you are talking freely about plans to construct a ship, if you're talking about plans for the Confederate Army, then you are not doing it in front of a secretary. You're doing it in front of invisible labor. The Cuban soldier you first met in episode two, Loretta Janetta Valesquez, became a spy, in the end working for both sides. Here's Luis Tinella Borrego. She she starts spying almost at the tail end of her military service. And then later on, this is when she stops being Harry Buford. That she really, she's Loretta, or, or an assumed female name, um, for the rest of, of the Civil War. She stops fighting. And the, mo the most interesting moment is she'll make it to Richmond. Um, and there, according to her, she'll, she'll join a spy ring. She's actually, she's going to eventually get sent to Washington, D.C. And there's this sense that someone in the Northern intelligence community finds out that she's a Confederate spy. And rather, they give her a kind of choice. Rather than being a you know, we could put you in jail because we know who you are or you could come work for us. And and there's this ambiguous sense of we really don't know where her loyalties lie because once she becomes a double agent, she's ostensibly spying for the Confederate government. She's brought in um, by the federal, by, by the union as a spy. And, and there's this sense that just like in her military career, just like when she was dating, whether it be men or leading on women, there's this sense that you don't quite know, well, where do Loretta's loyalties lie? And there's this whole mess that she gets involved in investigating a counterfeiting ring of that they're trying to counterfeit money because the money supply is important. And there's this sense, is she spying on the counterfeiters? Or is part of her act actually participating in the counterfeit itself? And if she's participating in it, who, where do her lawyers eyes? Is she doing this to mess up the United States? Is she doing this to help the Confederacy? You're never quite sure. And, and at least according to what she says, she's involved in, in various spy activities of a, of a double agent character like this pretty much until the end of the Civil War. And then 
the remaining part of her memoir is everything that happens to her through the 1870s um, after the Civil War. But but that almost as suddenly as her career starts, she's a spy, she's a double agent, we don't know what her loyalties are, and then that kind of, that chapter of her life peters off. One of the Union's best spies was former Southern Belle Elizabeth Van Lew. She lived in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, in one of that city's most exclusive neighborhoods, Churchill. A committed abolitionist and unionist, she developed a union spy ring. One of her undercover agents was Mary Bowser, a former slave in the Van Lew household who Van Lew set up in the Confederate president's household to steal secrets from the very desk of President Jefferson Davis. Here again, Kay Whitehead. Mary Bowser is someone that occupies a very interesting place in the canon of Black women who worked as spies during the Civil War. It is a very small canon. The hope is that more names and more stories will be added. But at the heart of the, the capital Confederate city, or on the plantation where you have the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, down in Richmond, Virginia, there is a story that we know some of it's true, some of it might have been embellished about Mary Bowser, who, as a formerly enslaved woman, posed as a servant to Jefferson Davis, and she worked along with uh, the woman's called Crazy Bet, Elizabeth Van Lue, that they worked together to try to bring down uh, the political fixtures of the South, to bring down this political movement that was happening within the South through the plantation of Jefferson Davis from the inside out. The stories that I was taught um, in studying Black women's history is that Crazy Bet, Elizabeth Van Lue, had organized this spy ring, um, you know, in the heart of the Confederacy, because Jefferson Davis's home, his plantation, was the heart of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. That Mary Bowser, we were told, had a photographic memory, and she was also an incredible actor, that she could play these roles and make people believe that she was one thing and that she was kind of a, a, slave, a slave who had no idea what was going on. She wasn't very smart. She wasn't very sharp, but that was complete opposite to who she was. That what they would do is that uh, Crazy Bad would get all this information, this intelligence out because Mary Bowser was the one giving it to her. And then she would then be responsible for taking this information up to the North to Union soldiers and finding a way to make sure that they can use it. So Mary Bowser uh, played the fool, is, is the, the funny way my professor would put it, that she had the this Confederate soldier, she had Jefferson Davis and others seeing her as someone who was senseless and stupid and unaware uh, and just trying to get along and doing whatever they said. Meanwhile, she is this very strong and very sh smart woman who was gathering this information so it could be passed along and it could be used as a way to take down the Confederacy from the inside out. You know, when people have low expectations of you, <laughs> you can take advantage of that, right? <laughs> when we're looking at, at studying 
the lives of uh, formerly enslaved or freeborn Black women during the 19th century, it, it really is a, it's a piecemealing process. And so Mary Bowser, who was born Mary Jane Richards. So it's important that if you're looking up information about Mary Bowser, you also have to know what, what her what her Christian name was, Mary Jane Richards. Um, she was born somewhere between 1839 and 1841. So by the time the war happened, you're getting into 1863, she was well into her young 20s at that point. She had been a servant uh, and remained a servant. First she was enslaved, but then she, once she received her freedom, she remained a servant for the Van Lu family. That, that's Crazy Bet's family. And the stories are that she was given special treatment, even from the time that she was baptized as an infant at the home church of the Van Lu family, um, when she was sent uh, possibly to Philadelphia is what the story goes, that she was sent to actually receive a formal education. Think about what it meant to be an enslaved woman who gets your freedom, who remains a servant to the family that gave you your freedom, who then made sure that you were educated. And then at the end of her, her formal education, she was then uh, dispatched as a missionary to Liberia in 1855. So she had an incredible history long before she, quote, played the fool to gather information for the Union soldiers. Because for someone to be formally educated, someone to have worked for four or five years as a missionary in Liberia, even though she eventually came back to America, um, this is someone who was also arrested. That when she arrived back to Virginia, because of the law on the books that said that Black Virginians, if you were living there, and if you were a free person, or if you had gotten an education, you couldn't be arrested. She was in jail for 10 days. And it was Van Lu who paid her bill. So she had all of these aliases that she used um, when she was working, consistently working to make sure that she can gather information that can then be given to the Union soldiers to then be able to take down the Confederacy from the inside out. Even young women spied. Belle Boyd was 17, living at her Virginia home, when she says a Union soldier insulted her mother. She shot him and then began a flamboyant career as a spy. Here again, Catherine Clinton. Boyd was someone who was theatrical and going into theatrics. Um, so she was looking to indeed establish herself as a, a woman on stage. And she took to the stage in her own lifetime and was someone who um, in some ways um, played one side against the other and used femininity as her weapon. And I think, you know, that that makes her a kind of daring, ideal um, wartime example for us. They called her the Cleopatra of the Secession and the Confederate Mata Hari. Her origin story, and I think this is, it's it's not funny, but it is. So she shoots a Union soldier who comes to her home and curses at her mother. Absolutely. Explain That's that not me. allowed. <laughs> well, you know, would you expect uh, a, a young girl to uh, avenge in the honor code? No, but uh, it wasn't really a uh, it wasn't a a duel, but it was in a sense that she was willing to stand up for her mother and her um, marriages, her her ongoing uh, skipping from career to 
prominence on the stage shows that she had a flair for the dramatic from a very young age. And I think that, you know, she is not representative of Southern women, but she is representative of the romanticization of what women could do during that period. She was willing to exploit her feminine qualities in order to get soldier suitors. Um, she said she used women's weapons in order to get what she wanted. So I think it's, you know, she started out as a, a courier and then made her way into becoming, you know, La Belle Rebelle, which was something she wanted to play. So um, wartime always offers opportunities to women to um, create themselves, to recreate themselves. And that was something she did quite well. Thank you for listening to the Fearless and Proud podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we tackle the critical role of women in caring for injured Union and Confederate soldiers throughout the Civil War. Women ran many battlefield hospitals and served as nurses on the battlefield. It was the first time in this country where women were allowed to work as nurses beyond their own close family circles. Follow me on Twitter at Jerry Willis FBN or Jerry underscore Willis on Instagram. Have a great week. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.